From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Ruach HaOlam. Blessed are you, creator of all who's created diversity, multiplicity within humanity. That was Rabbi Sandra Lawson, a powerful voice at the intersection of identities far too often and even increasingly marginalized in our society. We give thanks to you for the strength and resilience and and contributions of my people, black people throughout history and today. And may we continue to strive for justice and equality for all people. And may the stories and memories of those who have come before us continue to inspire us to work towards a better, brighter future for all. Happy Black History Month, my friends. As we see alarming erosion in the rights of women, increasing anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence, and a growing attempts to erase the truth of queer identity and experience, Rabbi Sandra speaks from a place of intimate first-hand experience, and in her writing, her teaching, her music, and online, she articulates a powerful, positive moral mandate for all of us to do better. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work at Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Rabbi Sandra Lawson, Inaugural Director of Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Reconstructing Judaism, is an activist, public speaker, and musician. She's also known as the TikTok rabbi. And we'll get into all of that in this conversation. Rabbi Sandra, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me. It's always good to spend some time with you, Paul. We have so many bad examples of the internet, but actually you're someone who are introducing a whole new generation of people to what it can mean to be a religious leader Mm -hmm. and a religious leader who shows up. Uh, for people in moments of crisis, offering a word of hope, a challenging word. And so I just want to say, it's so good to speak with you. And I'm thrilled and grateful for all you're doing in the world right now. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe you can give us, you know, some of the background of how you became this amazing rabbi who you are today. It didn't just happen. This is a journey. So can you just take us back to where you, one of the starting places for the journey for you? Yeah, and I I will. But I want to say first, just uh, what what you see your intro, you're talking about me. Thank you. Um, But it reminded me of something. Um, I was in rabbinical school during the Trump uh, election when Trump won. And uh, around that same time, I got a grant to start a podcast. And um, I, like a lot of activists, I was not very happy about the, the election. And so I decided to spend my time on the internet focusing on positivity. 
Um, and instead of, you know, like, what's, what's so wrong? I've already been down that route of activists being, you know, my 20s being angry and hostile about stuff. And I didn't want to do that as a rabbi. So that was a conscious choice. And, and I just wanted to, you know, um, and so I don't argue with people. There's less people who like to argue with me, but I just try to, I try my best to spread uh, a positive message um, um, about Judaism um, and spirituality as a whole. So I just wanted to, what you, what you said, which I'm, I'm glad you said it, it just reminded me of one of the reasons why I do what I do. Well, and it's an intentionality around mm -hmm. it. Like that it doesn't, that, <laughs> listen, staying positive in this moment is not something that just happens. You have yeah. to, it's a spiritual discipline. And so yeah. I just, I really appreciate you, you sharing that with us, but some of our listeners may not be acquainted mm -hmm. with you. And so I just would love to hear a little bit going back before you uh, went to rabbinical school, like mm -hmm. how you, how you got here. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on how I feel at the moment, I'll start here because, <laughs> you know, tomorrow <laughs> you might ask me, you get the same answer, but a different starting point. Um, you know, um, I think for many people, um, people come into our lives that can really completely change the trajectory of where we're going. Um, and for me, that was my friend Joshua Lesser. We're still friends today, um, you know. And and he might tell a different story, but you know, um, I was um, a personal trainer. I was um, in route to get a master's degree in sociology uh, with the plan of becoming an academic. That was the dream I had for myself, you know, walking around campus talking to students, you know. In my fantasy, there wasn't a lot of teaching, but <laughs> <laughs> and certainly no grading. But yeah, but there was a lot of walking around in a beautiful campus. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, that's that was the dream, and that's what I really wanted. And uh, Josh hired me as his personal trainer, and uh, we became friends. Uh, you know, um, and he says that that well, first of all, I have to say like when I. When I met him, I had not had positive experiences with clergy. Um, my only relationship with clergy, with, with Christian clergy, who many of them thought I was going to go to hell probably because I'm queer. Um, but I didn't have a lot of relationships with, with clergy anyway because I wasn't religion, raised in a religious environment. Every time I encountered a religious figure of some kind, it wasn't a great one. And uh, I grew up in the era of the three... The, the tele three channels and the tele tele televangelist who were not very good people <laughs> you know um and i talk about like reverend jim jones and seeing that the, the the murder of people on television and the bakers uh and the Falwells and well Falwell wasn't that bad but like there's another guy oh yeah the dude who Roberts, who said God was going to kill him if we didn't raise a million dollars, and like if he didn't raise like a million dollars or something <laughs> yeah. like that, and he lived in a, a long life, and I was like, what is wrong with these people? But I mean, and they were all over because we had three channels, and they were on. Um, and um, so when I met him, he was different, and now I realize he's not that different than many clergy. I just hadn't met people like him. And uh, I remember asking him, like, you know, what kind of rabbi are you? Because I didn't know much about rabbis either. And, you know, he had a joke for it. But he was also a queer rabbi, like a gay rabbi. And I hadn't met, uh, I had met a few gay clergy, but not a lot, like mostly through like some of the MCC folks that I 
uh, had met over time. And they also tried to get me to go to their church and I wasn't that interested. Um, but he says that I started asking more questions about Judaism. And I also had a Jewish girlfriend at the time. And, um, and that curiosity turned into going to his community. Um, and that curiosity led me to down a Jewish path. And um, I was happy being a Jew in a pew. I really was. Still, I finished my master's degree, still planning to get a PhD in sociology. But I noticed that um, I had more of a, a pull towards Judaism, especially when I started doing activist as, as a Jewish person. And I started building relationships with other clergy um, who, well, around 20, 2004, um, shortly after the Supreme Court said that, you know, people like me were not going to go to jail uh, for our relationships, many states had started to um, wanting to change their constitutions to ban gay marriage. And I, as an activist, I was just like, I'm not trying to get married. I'm just excited. I'm not going to go to jail for having sex. And um, I f quickly found myself on the defense of not just me, but other activists. And uh, I started working with other um, other clergy. Before I started working with other clergy, I started working with other activists. And that's when I learned about coalition building and politics. And I didn't like it very much. It was very hostile. I and mean, we were all supposed to be on the same page, but people were arguing about money and what was the right strategy. And it was a racially diverse coalition. And you know, many white folks had not spent a lot of time with black people and black people and many queer activists hadn't spent a lot of time with straight clergy or straight folks. And then uh, I got an invitation from a, um, a clergy friend of mine who's also named Paul. <laughs> and uh, he's like, why don't you come to this like, you know, we're having a clergy interfaith clergy meeting or something like that. And I was like, I'm not clergy. He's like, yeah, but you're Jewish and we need more diversity. Plus you're black and queer. You know, and probably in his mind, he was just thinking about boxes. I don't know. And I found that I was having many of the same conversations that I was having politically, but with clergy folks. Um, but everyone was trying to find common ground. Everyone mm. was trying to find a way to work together. So, like, I, some of the clergy that I met, they were all Christian, because at that time, interfaith meant Christian and Jewish, um, for folks in the South working on this stuff. Um, I um, I remember working with this radio evangelist guy named Reverend Love. That's all I remember. Is, that's what he called himself. I'm sure Reverend Love thought it was going to hell. I really do. I don't think he I don't think he thought much about Jewish folks and I don't think he thought much about queer folks, but we agreed that the state had no business in our bedrooms. Uh -huh. <laughs> so him and I went to a college campus and started talking about this Constitution mem Amendment. And I was really good at um, working, partnering with other clergy, talking about Judaism. And I wanted to do more of that. And I started thinking less and less about getting a PhD, which I thought was nuts because I had planned out this road yeah. of how to do that. And yeah. this other path of becoming a rabbi was like made no sense to me how that was going to happen. And uh, um, from that moment to about six years later, I decided to go to rabbinical school because um, I was became less interested in getting a PhD. And I wanted, 
uh, to investigate this path a little bit more. And, and here yeah. I am. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it is it is an amazing, like, mm-hmm. looking back, you can see the path. And mm-hmm. while you're walking it, though, it always is like, I can't even believe I'm on this path. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I... When I went to seminary, I did it almost because it was the craziest thing I could possibly do. And, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, then, yeah. and then like, as I kept walking, I was like, oh my God, maybe, maybe actually this is exactly what I'm supposed to do because mm-hmm. it's so crazy for me right, to be right. here. And like someone like me, I, I was always like, someone like me is never going to be a religious leader, but mm-hmm. you come at this, you know, you, you, you're, you come at this moment in America where we have just incredible vitriol against mm-hmm. and and you know I would say active um, efforts at subjugation of black people, yeah. rising yeah. anti-Semitism, um, you know the the attempted like kind of rollback of LGBTQ rights, um, you know especially around trans issues, and so you come at this moment honestly with all of these identities, mm-hmm. and I just. And and you have a commitment to being productive and positive in the yeah. way that you interact. I mean, it, I'm just curious, like, you know, how how you um, manage to move forward in a time where it feels like so much of who you mm-hmm. are is is under attack. Yeah, breathe. Um, so I, I'm sorry. Initially- I'm sorry to like you know. I don't no, mean no, to no, put no. that on you. I just you know no. it, it just feels like you know I you know it feels like a ter- a very terrifying moment. It is, and what I'll say to that is we've already won. That's the thing. We've already won the culture war. We've already won, and the people pushing back on it don't like it. Um, and they're trying Ooh, to make us move back to a different I, time period. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. The the victory is won, and what yeah. we're seeing is people like is are writhing and angry. Right. Um, that is an amazing perspective. And so, how do you then? You know, I think that that that's really it, what I like about that is it doesn't make us defensive. Right. It, it it actually puts us back on like okay, right. we're gonna we're gonna we're we are not in a defensive stance. We're in a a stance of being of holding our ground and saying this is just the way it is. But what do we do? I mean, I'm going to Florida next week mm-hmm. um, to give a talk in in Southwest mm-hmm. Florida where they feel totally under attack. Right. The school boards, um, you know, queer people. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. like what. For you, as someone who who shows up in such a particular way, what is your sense of what's going on in Florida with uh, Governor DeSantis and and all the ways that they're trying to erase mm-hmm. Black history? I mean, that feels it feels it does feel like a reaction to something that that a certain part of the population is terrified of. Yeah. Like I don't know much about. Ron DeSantis until he ran for governor and I know more about him now than I did then and I you know I see him as somebody who is playing a political game with people's lives which is really sad Um, and what I see happening is that now when I said we've already won if we don't stay vigilant and pay attention all that can be rolled back um, and and laws can be snuck in that um, people aren't aware that's how we got to this abortion mess like right. <laughs> that right. people weren't paying attention. People were like, okay, 
uh, Rose the Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, and the Supreme Court has said so, not thinking there was a possibility that that could be changed. And so <clears throat> what I see happening is that I do believe we've already won, and we, we're still, it's still a game or still a war, or however you want to phrase it. I don't really like war language. But, you know, um, if, we, if we don't pay attention, if we don't vote, if we don't um, do our, our responsibility as citizens, we can lose all those things. And people yeah. will be surprised. Um, we have some of the lowest voter, voter turnout than any other country. Part of that is because it's not a day off. Um, uh, it's not a requirement. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but it just saddens me and because many people think um, that they can't change the system. And also the system, our system from the very beginning was designed to privilege one group of people over another group of people, including how we vote. I mean, gerrymandering, instead of like, you know, democratically drawing lines, people draw lines so that they can win. Yeah. You know, um, that's, <laughs> no, you know and that's, that's politics. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guest is Rabbi Sandra Lawson, inaugural director of racial diversity, equity, and inclusion at Reconstructing Judaism. You felt like a kind of kinship with Judaism. You, you said in in some other um, places that you felt liberated yeah, when you yeah. like, and that's like so powerful. Talk a little bit about. Um, what it means to show up in Jewish spaces that are predominantly white and often assumptively white, even though that's not the reality of global mm -hmm. Judaism. How do you help um, the Jewish community really welcome and, and embrace the diversity that is within Judaism? So what's interesting is that, you know, as a rabbi, I spent all that years, those years of training, like, you know, it, you know, for many rabbis, it takes five to six years to become a rabbi. A lot of that is language acquisition. But um, as a keeper of this history that's thousands of years old, that's how I see it. Like, it's my responsibility as a rabbi to carry forward this tradition that has existed for, you know, centuries. And because I know text and I know this history and I know what's written because I can read the written language, that's another thing not being not having access to the original language for many jews or people can be challenging and people don't know what the text says and so uh, having rabbis interpret text now that is changing because we are translating a lot of our texts into english there's a wonderful website if you don't know about it, it's called safaria.org um but when I go into Jewish communities as a rabbi or as an educator, or as a teacher or a representative of Reconstructing Judaism, I'm bringing this history of what our texts say about diversity, what our texts say about, uh, um, you know, bringing in different voices. Like right now, I mean, I know when this airs, it'll be different, but right now we are in the tour portion called Yitro. Um, Yitro is uh, Moses's father-in-law, and um, it's, it's often translated as Jethro, which makes me think of the Beverly Hibbelies, but anyway. Um, so Yitro is the only Torah portion named after a non-Israelite, or we would say a non-Jew today. Um, and he changed, and as the outsider, someone who's not in the community, completely changes the judicial system 
in the in the Torah. You know, he's just like because Moses is like hearing people's complaints and you know fights and whatever, and he's litigating all this stuff, and then he's like, you can't do this. This is like too much of a burden. And I joke sometimes he probably wanted more grandchildren, but um, he helps Moses. Uh, create a pluralistic democratic system that we still kind of use today. And I, I would, if I was in a community right now, I would bring that text forward and talk about the importance of having diverse voices. Just because we've always done something a certain way or always seen the Jewish community a certain way doesn't mean that they can't change or doesn't mean that we can't have other ways of looking at stuff. So when people see people like me I'm black, I'm queer, and they're really kind of confused about how I'm a rabbi, you know, I can tell them how that's possible. Um, and I can say what are, you know, for, you know, Jews like to argue, but like, for folks that like to bring up texts about why I can't be a rabbi, I have other texts that I can bring up about why I am a rabbi and how that's possible. Well, and, and also, I think that, you know, there's there's an idea that, you know, okay, you have to look a certain way, you have to, like, you know, have a certain gender or whatever, and then, but, but, you know, I just, I would invite anyone who has a question to kind of take some time, listen mm-hmm. to someone, you know, and, and, you know, with you, I just feel like, you know, you're a rabbi because you're a teacher and mm-hmm. I, I've learned from you and many, many other people have. And so, you know, this is, this is, you know, it's an, I think it's an opportunity. And I do think, I think wider Judaism in America, at least, Ooh. is really actually, for the most part, eager for it. They are trying. I mean, they, they, but but it. I think it's changes slow. And my guess is that there's been a lot of, um, you know, perhaps hurt along the way. But I, you know, I'm I'm just really grateful uh, for for the Jewish part of my family. Uh, that is, you know, the, the, I'm grateful for your presence and and the and the widening, the yeah. widening and the invitation. Uh, it's so. Important. I just want to say about that, like Judaism, the, the Jewish culture in America is a microcosm of what's happening in the larger society. So the same challenges, the same, all of the same stuff that, that is playing out in larger society is also playing out in the Jewish community. And so for many Jews, someone like me becoming a rabbi is exciting because they see it as the future. And for other folks, it is scary because they worry about what it says about them, what they're going to lose. You know, um, and, you know, why someone like me is challenging for some Orthodox folks, not all, I mean, some Orthodox folks. I've, you know, I know a lot of Orthodox rabbis who completely embrace someone like me, but people who are not rabbis or who are holding on to a past, um, even if they themselves are not Orthodox, but they're still lifting that up, (laughs) um, someone like me is scary. Um, but for a vast majority, this is exciting to see yeah. more diversity in the rabbit, more women, more people of color, more queer people. Yeah, I, I actually think that's so interesting that the, mm-hmm. the Jewish community in America is a microcosm of America as a whole. I think it's true that all the issues, all of the challenges, all of the excitement and the opportunity all mm-hmm. meshed into one. Right. Up next, more with Rabbi Sandra Lawson. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. 
how are you understanding the anti-Semitism, this incredible, challenging, and for many terrifying rise of anti-Semitism right now? I mean, I have literally talked to several people who are thinking of leaving the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And ironically, terribly ironically, some of them thinking about going to Germany because mm-hmm. they feel it would be safer. Mm-hmm. How do you understand anti-Semitism right now? And maybe some ways that our listeners can be part of a mobilization to counteract right. anti-Semitism right now. So I hope I get, I have a lot to say about this particular subject and hopefully I'll remember it all. So anti-Semitism was brought to the United States from Europe. It was brought here. And as a Christian-centric society, it's always been an underbelly. Many Jews who immigrated from Europe, America was a safe haven. It was the first country to grant unconditional citizenship to uh, Jews who came from Europe. Um, and, and for many Jews, uh, wanting to desperately assimilate into American culture because they were willing to like, okay, that that's the past and here now and to be an American. And in many ways for those Jews, their assimilation is very similar to other European folks in some ways. But for the longest time, Jews weren't considered white. Um, and that changed, you know, in the middle of the, the, 19th, the 20th century. Um, so the United States is a society that's DNA is designed to privilege one group of people over another people. So white people, and whiteness evolves over time, has evolved over time. White people have more privileges and um, our, 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 our system is designed to privilege whiteness over darker skinned people. Our, our system is designed to privilege Christianity over other, other symbols, other, other, excuse me, other religions. And um, if you understand anti-Semitism, you understand that when, um, different times and different cultures, anti-Semitism rises. And Jews have always been a scapegoat for the problems in our society, always been a scapegoat for problems in all in all societies. And anti-Semitism has also evolved where you don't necessarily have to subscribe to Christianity to be anti, an anti-Semite. But it's so ingrained in Christian societies that people don't even recognize um, anti-Semitic tropes. You know, one example I often use is uh, a college student said to me, um, I believe a Christian college student uh, in, the, in, in the religious center of the college said, you know, well, I believe in the loving God of the New Testament, not the wrathful God of the Old Testament. And I was like, ow. <laughs> and, and in that moment, I don't think she had ever thought that there was something wrong with that statement. That was just what she had heard. And um, that sparked a, a different conversation later on with other people who heard that. Um, and it was just like, I never thought about it before. And there are so many anti-Semitic tropes. In a similar way, there's so many racist tropes that people don't even think about. Um, I also think that the Jewish community, the larger white Jewish community, or, or white passing coded <laughs> folks who co- are coded as white in the Jewish community can learn a lot from how black and brown people experience racism. As a black person, I know racism exists in our society. 
for many Jews, they didn't think much about anti-Semitism. They didn't really thought it maybe was something of the past. Black people function in our society knowing that it's a racist society. Didn't mean people are bad, but we understand that racism has evolved over time and that racism shows up frequently because it's a system. It's not just about individual bias. And uh, for many of my, um, my white colleagues and my white Jewish friends, um, to understand how anti-Semitism works on the right and on the left, so on the right-leaning extreme folks, it is really hard to do any education on anti-Semitism because it is core to the belief of how they function as extreme right folks. It is the core of how, and I'm not talking Republican, I'm talking right-wing extremist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when anti-Semitism shows up on the left, which is where many Jews spend their time, education can go a long way. To like, I can imagine some people would have just dismissed that student that I mentioned, but let me give you some education. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I would never want to hurt you. You only said that as a student because that's what you were told your entire life, but now you're out with other people and you're getting a different perspective. And so that's kind of how I right. see yeah. I, I, I think that, that that is really helpful. And, you know, it is, um, there's a way in which it feels like some people are almost, you know, we, we talk about dog whistles, but it's almost as though they've become explicit. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and, and a little bit, you know, it, it feels more the mainstreaming. I mean, to have a, you know, to have someone who's essentially a white Christian nationalist be the Republican nominee in, in Pennsylvania, um, mm -hmm. it just, it felt like a very, it, it felt very intimidating. Yeah. And I don't think that, you know, I think, you know, nice, nice white Christian folks that would not want to be intimidating, but they don't, again, the education piece, they don't understand like why it's so intimidating just, to, to say we need a Christian nation. And what mm -hmm. that means to everybody else, including me as a Christian, who's not the right kind of Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say we need a Christian nation, what you're basically saying is that everybody else is second class stat status. And and Jews take that really seriously, as they should, especially since, you know, while I would agree it has been, there has been a Christian-centric, you know, reality in America, we can, we can state that this country is not a Christian nation and that that's a good thing. It's a nation for everybody. And we have, mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's something we have to claim right now that this is, you know, there, there, it was, it is not a Christian nation. We Except are not, I will push you on that. I mean, I agree with you and our system as a nation is a Christian nation. So I, I think that there, there has been a privileging of it. Yeah. And, um, and there is the, um, Officially, in the Constitution, we do not have a religion. Right, right. And so, you know, and so I just think, yeah. like, recognizing that, and, and that, you know, President George Washington wrote to the congregation in Newport mm -hmm. saying, there will mm -hmm. be no one tradition that will be privileged. Right. Now, in reality, we know that that is not, but, right. but it's also important to recognize that there were these signifiers in the beginning that actually we are better as a nation mm -hmm. that invites a 
multiplicity, a diversity, that that is actually our strength. Uh, it's, it's the genius, if we have one, of America that actually other people, that all people are invited. But, but you know, I, I agree completely. Talk to me a little bit about how you're, you're you know, we're in Black History Month. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me how that feels uh, to you in this 2023 Black History Month. Yeah, I mean, I always try to, like on social media, I try to always frame stuff in reference to what's happening Black History Month. Like when you're every day on my Instagram for the whole month, I shared like images and stories of different leaders um, and I think one year that that year, instead of showing the normal pictures of Dr. King, I showed the ones of him being arrested. <laughs> um, and, you know, what I think is kind of sad right now is that when we're talking about DeSantis, and it's not just him, like he's just a product, he, like he wants to win um, the, the nomination. And for many people, I understand he's probably better than more palatable than Trump. Um, you know, until we actually embrace the fullness of our history, you know, the fullness of our history that, yes, George Washington, a father of our country, but also a slave owner, like, right. I I can honor both. And many white people can't, <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they any, any negativity about Jefferson or or um, whatever, instead of like being truthful about the fact that he owned slaves, are they owned slaves? Is like Ashanda, like you shouldn't be saying that that's just bad, like, but that's the truth. Yeah. And so no, if we don't absolutely. start talking about the truth and holding both truths, we're never going to get anywhere. We're going to be revisiting this again. And that's what happens every so year, so many years. We revisit this. We've been where we are right now, we've been here before. It just looks a little different. It is. It is shocking to me that they, the brazenness, frankly, of it is just saying, okay, anything that makes anyone uncomfortable about our past, I mean, guess what? You know, I mean, it is, it is, an, it is a very uncomfortable past. And you know who it's really, you know, the, the people who suffered and came through and are now contributing so much to our country, mm-hmm. and you want to erase their history of everything they went through. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's absolutely outrageous and that you would say, Oh, well, we're not going to have a black history, AP course. Right. Or deny um, that black people built this country and participated in its great. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it is, uh, it, it is, it is, you know, the, the idea that you can't handle that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you want to move forward and you want everybody to come together. And why are we talking about these negative things? It's mm-hmm. just not the way it works. It, and uh, it doesn't mean that we can't move forward. Right. It means that we have to move forward with some truth telling. Right. And, you know, and I, I have to say this just because people, people don't know it. There were reparations when slavery ended. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Guess who got the reparations? Slave yeah. owners. Yeah. Yeah. If people don't know that, I mean, I just think like that's like a piece of history that people should know mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the only people who got re- reparations were the slave owners who mm-hmm. lost their property. And then our uh, country has given land away, you know, to you, they, you know, pushed out indigenous folks and gave land to immigrants coming from Europe. 
It was a giveaway. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so it's, you know, we just need to remember, you know, but it doesn't mean that we can't move to, to, it just, we need to move forward with intentionality. And so I think that that's just so, and again, this is where you're kind of, it's your positivity feels to me like not, it's not Pollyanna. It's not sanitized positivity. It's saying that we're going to know all of this and still move forward. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guest is Rabbi Sandra Lawson, the TikTok rabbi. I want to talk a little bit about how you understand the internet, because one of the things that, you know, we're, I'm very concerned about, and I think you might know this, is just how religion interacts with the internet and how um, right now, of course, um, there's so much hate online mm-hmm. and people getting attacked online and, you know, specifically Muslims and Jews are some of the most attacked online mm-hmm. um, for who they are. Now, how do you understand the way social media works in your world? And how do you understand specifically how hate um, kind of manifests itself on the internet? So, well, the, so like what I appreciate right now about the internet is I grew up in a time period where there was no such thing, you know, like, um, you know, that I am, I have boundaries online. People may not see them, but I do have boundaries online. Young people today, I really am concerned about how they use the internet, how they see themselves, um, you know, because people like to show all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. And, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I read an article um, about from, it came across my feed I think it was called the alienization of plastic surgery, how um, these are plastic surgeons calling out the cry that, you know, I skimmed these art, but like we're creating aliens by making people look a certain way and having other people aspire to look like that. And that's not normal. (laughs) Um, And so, um, I don't have children, but I would be, you know, if as a as if, if I can, if I can imagine, as someone who's not afraid of the internet, I would I would want to teach them how to use the internet responsibly. And I think many I worry that many parents are not having conversations because they themselves don't understand the internet. Right, um, right. And- I, I, you know, I remember when I was at at Huffington Post, um, we had a group of young people come in uh, and we had these talks and we were, you know, it was part of AOL. And so there was this big group of young people and I was one of the the talks. And one of the other speakers who worked at AOL said, oh, well, you're young, so you know all about the internet. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. No, you don't. You you just, this is like, you're in water and you don't even know you're in water. And you don't know where the dangerous tides are. And you don't know, like, you know, that the internet was not built for you. Right. <laughs> the internet was built, you know, for other people and now it's built for money mostly. Right. And yeah. so and and the and and the internet wants to track you. The internet wants to know everything about you. And and so it's just people yeah, I agree with you completely. Like part of what you've just said is like how do you show up online and make boundaries? And mm-hmm. specifically like you know, how do you, how do you, how do you inoculate yourself mm-hmm. against some of the stuff that comes at you? Because my guess is that you get some stuff coming at you. Yeah. I want to tell you this before I get to that, I want to tell you the story. So when I was at, when I was at Elon, 
there were two of my former Hillel presidents that were about to graduate. And there was a bar on campus. And so to celebrate, I took them out. And I don't know if I bought the wine. I don't know. But we were at this bar. We were like, drink some wine and celebrate because they were graduating. And, and they, yes, they were over 21. <laughs> and um, at the end, we were going to take a picture. And, you know, they had, in, in my memory, it was sort of like the typical college picture, tongue hanging out, glass of wine. And I said, put the glass away. Let's just, just take a picture. And they kept trying to bring the glass of wine back into the picture. And this lady sitting after like three times, this lady sitting next to them was like, she's trying to save your career or something like that. <laughs> right. Right. Like, just because the Internet is forever. And right. I already know folks who can who rabbis who have been because other rabbis have told me that they didn't get a job because a particular image showed up of the rabbi. And they didn't think that was very rabbinic. Um, yeah. So back to the other thing, when I started using, so I've, I've always been an early adapter to things like classmates or Friendster or MySpace. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, in case, in case uh, yeah. listeners don't get that, that means she's old. She doesn't <laughs> look it. She looks like she's in her twenties, but uh, you know, she, that means she's old. <laughs> and I started using those things because I part, partly because I moved around a lot and I always wanted to, you know, there was, a, you know, like if you're a kid, if you're a kid now and you lose track of people, then you just don't care because this I, you know, grew up before emails and there's, you know, and thank goodness for Facebook because I've been able to catch up with people and see where they are in their lives. Um, but when I went to rabbinical school, um, one of my for the first year when I applied for internships. Now I have to say, you can't, you, you, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom and intern internships are, are crucial to the development of rabbis. And, um, because again, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom and being out in the field, working as a rabbi can like, you know, help you learn. And I was having trouble with that because people could not get past my skin color. And um, um, there's, you know, stories that I could tell for days, but I was like, I don't want to graduate from the Reconstruction for Medical College and I still have to explain to people how I exist. So I started to use the Internet to teach and to sort of show people my experiences in rabbinical school and also so people would know by the time my plan was by the time i graduated i would have enough name recognition or at least people were got had gotten used to seeing me that it would be a non-issue anymore and so that was my initial goal for for using you know for sharing on facebook and twitter um and over time that has evolved and changed um, and, but that's, that's why I started doing it. So if my goal was to make sure I could get a job and to, and to lessen the racism that I would experience. Uh, and so I stayed focused on that and that helped me to sort of not deal with the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is actually, you know, cause I was an early champion of the internet mm -hmm. as a, as a po possible positive mm -hmm. tool because yeah. the gate, you talked earlier about like the three channels. Right. And the three channels decided what you were going to know. Right, right. And, and the three channels kind of like were the gatekeepers. And in mm -hmm. some ways that was comforting because you could, a lot of, you know, a lot of nasty wouldn't get at you. But also it limited your exposure to right. a lot. Mm -hmm. It also um, made 
a few people the producers of mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And now what you, do, you what you did is said I'm going to produce myself. Right. And I'm going to and I'm going to show the world and I'm going to introduce myself so that I don't have to rely on someone else to do mm-hmm. it. And that's exactly. a right. remarkable change. And and I don't think people we're still at the very beginning of this technology. Mm-hmm. Like someone's going to come back and find this interview and say, "Oh, look how that that's so cute they did that with their chiseled rocks." You yeah. know what I mean? Like we everything, you know, we're at the beginning of the internet. The internet is the most like significant technological mm-hmm. revolution ever to hit uh, humankind and it's going to change everything and already Uh has. And so, but, and, and part of that is the radical democratization of who can do what. And Mm -hmm. even though there's still like, there's still systems that are controlling it. So, so what we see now is that people like you can produce yourself and get out into the world and people can learn from you. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing that very bad actors can do the same thing. Right. And get into people's heads and get into, you know, and, and, and find other bad actors and plot very bad things. And so that, you know, the internet, like it's a blessing and a curse and, and, but it requires us to really think about it. And I, I often say to religious leaders, when was the last time you preached about the internet? Not just saying you got to get off the internet because, you know, and take a sabbatical. That's not enough. What about, this is the most important impact on on the world society. What is, what is the religious voice? When two, when when 10 Jews are gathered online, is that a minion? I think so. You think so, but, but others don't. And, And answering that question, two or three Christians are gathered online. Is Jesus there? Mm. I think it's it gets into what do we mean by our bodies? What do we mean by like what what is it, what does it mean to be together? You know, I mean, I so it really is like the question of what the technology means for religion and our and our theological assumptions or, mm-hmm. or our religious assumptions is just really exciting to think about and and uh, and underexamined, I would say, by by most people who are you know, we, mm-hmm. I, I studied 13th century Christian theology at seminary. And and I can't I don't even know I can't say anything about it. But you know, but I, I kinda wish a little bit more time had been spent because that was just when the internet was happening uh in the nineties. Um so so give us you you started this conversation saying you, you've been intentionally positive. What are what what are a few things that give you cause for hope right now? You know, the same thing I said earlier is that we've already won. As a, as a black queer person who am, a, I'm a product of two parents that made the migration from the Jim Crow segregated South to, and found their way to St. Louis and met and had me and my brother, you know, and they were parents, you know, they, they, you know, their their parents experienced some horrors that I probably will never even understand. And, and they my parents shielded me from it. Um, I see the progress. I see that we are no longer that same country of my grandparents, thank God of my grandparents' generation. And at the same time, folks, bad actors have found a way to keep bringing that stuff back, but just, you know, evolving a little bit. For example, the number of white extremists or white extreme politicians that like to say that they are experiencing racism just makes me crack up. But they say that enough that people are starting to believe it. 
Like, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I don't think anybody on this call thinks takes seriously, was on somewhere talking to some educator or some school administrator about how CRT was racist against white folks. <laughs> Just like, you don't even understand what the hell it is. Like, but I do see the progress that has been made and we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, and, um, yeah, I already forgot your question. <laughs> no, no, it's about hope. And and, yeah. and 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 I think that, you know, recognizing that things can change. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, the paralysis can set in and say, ah, oh, you know, but but things can change, but they generally don't change without a lot of people coming right. together to make yeah. a decision that we're gonna change. I was gonna say too that I know like I remember after the twenty sixteen election as somebody who'd been through previous, you know, elections that weren't so great, um, for the first time, I saw more people on my side of the line, you know, than on the other side of the line. And I was like, wow, you know, um, it, and yes, because of the, because of how our system worked, the person who got the popular vote did not win the election, but that wasn't the first time that it happened. But there were more people that agree with people like me than I think ever before. And I, I don't forget that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's so helpful to remember mm-hmm. that um, we are, we are not the um, minority. We actually represent the, the direction that the country wants to go right. in. And, and, you know, there were polling just last year, 70% of America wants a religiously diverse country. They want a diverse mm-hmm. country. They believe that that's what America should be. Right. And so we have to remember that, that we're actually working for uh, an America that people really want to live in and want mm-hmm. to everybody you know, treat everybody with respect. And this, you know, the the Christian nationalists and those who would erase history in order to protect some sort of, um, you know, delusion of American history, they're, they're, they're on the wrong side. And we have to right. just, you know, you know, and, and hopefully if we can invite them, like you invited that girl who said, I believe in the loving, you know, you know <laughs> Jesus rather, if you can invite people to say, hey, you know what? You you can learn about our history and move forward with all of us together. Right. It doesn't require you, right. you know, getting shunted to the side. It just requires us having a circle rather than someone in the middle and the rest of right. us is surrounding them, you know. And so I, I think that um, what you're doing is just so... Uh, so hopeful. I hope everyone um, tell us your all your uh, social media cha- uh, channels and your website so that our listeners get a chance to experience um, you for themselves because like it'll make your day better. Yeah, that much I will promise you. So I will I will do that, but and you can do it with us what you will. Um, I was talking to my uh, supervisor, the CEO of Reconstructing Judaism before this before you and I started talking. And, you know, one of the things that she reminds me of is that my strength is in relationships. I like having relationships with people. I like talking to people. I'm the type of person, please pick up the phone and call me versus like sending me mass different emails that I can't keep track of. And so I'm saying this because, and I hope this helps your listeners. There's a friend of mine, I've sort of lost track of him, but there's this guy I know 
that because of circumstances, we became friends. In any other world, we would never have been friends. Like we really weren't. Like he's, you know, the straight laced white dude, button tie, Republican, you know, um, the, believe really believed that they didn't know anything about Bull Connor and his dogs in the in the '60s. You know, thought that you know, slave. We went from slavery to Dr. King, and like to use the sanitized text of Dr. King. I'm saying all that to say this: we would argue about all kinds of stuff, and um, when. Trump was elected in 2016. He sent me a message and he said, I'm scared. And I'm texting hmm. you because you are the only person in my orbit that I can tell that to. And I was like, damn, like, I didn't talk to him for a long time. And I was like, wow. And because we built this relationship, because again, of circumstances put us together, he had somebody that he could talk to. All his other friends were like very different. So that so I'm just saying like relationships are so important if we ever plan to change things. And I'm not saying to put the people should put themselves in harm's way and have relationships with people that are harmful, but uh, building relationships, whether they're online or in person, um, is, is so important. Okay, my social media handles. <laughs> Um, Listen, that was a great, that is a great um, story and, and such a, such a powerful lesson about like not, you know, you could also like have just decided, sorry, I'm not, oh, you've never heard of that. Okay. Come to me when you, you know, come to me never, or come to me when you've had, you know, you could have just like been dismissive. Instead, you tried to engage him with, Mm -hmm. again, without you know, harming yourself or diminishing yourself. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And as much as we can do that, I do, you know, I need to learn that because I get mm-hmm. very like, what, you know, but, but it is really like that can make a difference. And all right. of us have learned at some point, none of us yeah. came out knowing everything. Right. And, right. and I might, you know, that has been my mm-hmm. story. It's, you know, part of your story, everybody's story. We all need to learn yeah. and someone can help us learn. Mm-hmm. And help us grow. And maybe we can be that person who can help others grow. So I just yeah. love that story. Yeah. Okay. Now, we're going to hear all the handles. People, yeah. get out your pens or get out your little uh, you know, pens. How about that? Yeah, back into yeah. the 80s. So it would be pretty uh, boring, though, because I have branded myself and have changed some handles over time. But you can find me pretty much any social media platform as Rabbi Sandra. So at Rabbi Sandra. So I'm at Rabbi Sandra on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. One is like, says Rabbi Sandra Lawson. That's my professional page. And my personal page is Rabbi Sandra. Um, All right. Almost every platform that I can think of is at Rabbi Sandra. At Rabbi Sandra. Thank you so much for talking today on on State of Belief. I just love talking to you. You're inspiring and you're as hopeful in this kind of conversation as you are in your all of your social media. I hope someday I actually get to see you in person. Uh, So let's let's try to let's try to make that happen at some point. Uh, Rabbi Sandra Lawson, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is in production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member of Interfaith Alliance today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be talking with Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Joint Baptist Committee for Religious Liberty, which organized the movement Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I cannot wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. Think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.